Well, I'm going to come out of the closet this morning. <laughs> I'm a Seahawks fan. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm going to jump up and down when we score, and I'm going to be upset when there's a bad call. And uh, so you can come and do that too and make me feel comfortable. And I'm going to unabashedly this morning use the Seahawks and the Super Bowl as an illustration of what I want to preach on. On this Super Sunday, I thought it was appropriate to ask the question, what must I do to win? Even though we share varying degrees of excitement about the game that will be played this afternoon, and even though it's a unique event for those of us who live here in the Northwest, I was told by my mother down in Portland that Everybody down there considers that it's their team too. Uh, it pales in, cons- in comparison to the opportunity that all of us have to be a winner when we stand before Jesus someday. As, we, as we've been discussing for, the f- for a few weeks now, the Bible clearly teaches that there will be a day of accounting for every person. Everyone who has ever lived or is yet to live will stand individually before God and give account for the deeds that he or she has done while living on earth. For the believer in Jesus, here's what the scripture says. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed, paid back, for the deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, our Lord does not want us to live in fear of that day, but rather to excitedly prepare for it. It will be the joy of our Lord to award us prizes for the good works that we have done. He is looking forward to that. Scripture clearly indicates. The Bible talks about His, God's inheritance in the saints. He's got something to look forward to in us. Should this event be important to us? As I mentioned to you, there are those I've heard throughout my life and even in the last week or so talking with others. A friend of mine who's a pastor says, you know, it just really doesn't motivate me that much. Well, I think it was a big motivation in Paul's life. He had it on his mind as he ordered the affairs of his daily life. Philippians chapter 3 says, Paul says, One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now understand that the prize is not going to heaven. Going to heaven is a gift. But it's the prize that's associated with that time that he sees Jesus. That's what he's looking forward to. The same focus on this future event is found by the Apostle Paul again in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And if you look in your bulletin, there's... uh, sermon notes, where I have that for you. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. And everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. But I buffet my body and make it my slave, lest possibly after I have preached to others, I myself should be disqualified or lose the prize. 
I believe that the Apostle Paul was excited about his meeting with Jesus. He was looking forward to that meeting with Jesus, and a big part of the reason that he was excited about meeting Jesus face to face is because he had been getting ready for that meeting. He was doing things day after day, ordering the affairs of his life so that he could get ready for that meeting. It's one thing, he said, I do. I forget what lies behind and I press on to what's ahead, reaching forward, pressing onward for the prize. Are you running the race of your life in such a way that you will win the prize that Jesus wants to give you? Or will you suffer with embarrassment when you stand before him? I don't mean to scare you by saying this, but it will be reality for some, if not for many, Christians. And again, I remind you of this passage of Scripture in 1 John chapter 2. Now, little children, abide in Him. Stay close to Jesus, so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from Him in shame at His coming. He's talking to children, I mean to children of God, Christians. So I asked the question this morning, what must I do to win? Now, if you've been following the build-up to the Super Bowl, you know that one of the questions that, that uh, all the commentators have been asking is, what must the Seahawks do to win? So what do they need to do to win? Well, they usually come up with three or four things, like, um, well, they need to score early, okay? Get on, the, get on the scoreboard as quick as you can so that you don't fall behind. Um, hang on to the ball. Uh, try to force turnovers. And run a balanced, uh, balanced offense of running and, uh, and passing. There's a pretty clearly defined understanding of what's necessary to win. There is so much one hears about what is important as a follower of Jesus. What are the essentials? What do we need to do to win? So that when we stand before Jesus, he says, well done. I suggest to you, and we'll take some time to look at these in detail, but faith, to faithfully use what God has entrusted you, humbly and, and lovingly serving others, generously sharing your resources, and following God's instructions are what we need to do. I'll put those in front of you here in a, in, a, in a couple of moments. It's not about keeping rules. It's about loving other people, fundamentally. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25 says, Don't forsake the assembling of yourself, as the manner of some is, but, but, uh, but encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. It says, in that same context, it says to uh, provoke or to stimulate one another to love and good works. And I've thought about that. Stimulate one another to love and good works. It seems like that's a, sometimes there's a, there's a figure of speech in the Bible that we use, that's in the Bible, it's also in our, the way we speak, that's called hendiades, and that's where you take two words to mean one thing. Uh, for instance, if we pray and say, God, lead and guide us, I don't know that we're thinking of two specific things we want God to do, but we use couplets sometimes like that to say the same thing. We, we, we do that um, often in our speaking. And I think what, the, uh, what the, the writer of the Hebrews is saying, that we need to stimulate one to other to love and good works, good works are really wrapped up in loving other people. 
Good works are not a matter of keeping rules. Good works are a matter of loving people. Um, Coach Mike Holmgren is not reviewing the rules with his players today. <laughs> He's not having a meeting with them today and saying, okay, you guys, now we need to go over the rules. Okay? <clears throat> They're way past that. They need to keep the rules, but that's not the focal point today. The players are not going out to play the game today, concentrating and talking on the sidelines about the rules. Now remember those rules. We've got to keep those rules. They must play by the rules in order to win, but they're not going to win by focusing all their attention on keeping the rules. And I think that a lot of Christians think that the important thing in life is keeping the rules. When they think about standing before Jesus someday, he's going to pull out the rule book and say, okay, check. Check, check, check. That's not what's going to happen. Good works are not a matter of keeping the rules. See, that's what the Pharisees thought. They thought that when they stood before God someday, He was going to check off to see how they kept the rules. In Matthew chapter 9, it says, And it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in His house, in the house, Behold, many tax gatherers and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why is your teacher eating with tax gatherers and sinners? But when he heard this, he said, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. The Pharisees and religious people throughout the ages have thought <clears throat> that what's important to do is to keep the rules. I don't do these ten things, and I do these ten things, and therefore I'm, I'm good to go in front of God. That's not what it's all about. If you want to win, it's not a matter of keeping the rules. Jesus says very clear here, clearly here, I desire compassion and not sacrifice. So, I would like to suggest to you uh, what is necessary to win. Not a football game, but to win when you stand before Jesus. So if you want to take that out and, and fill in the blanks, you can do that. First, faithfully use what God has entrusted to you. Faithfully use what God has entrusted to you. Like the manager of a business. If you are, uh, you know, many of you work at... Uh, establishments where there's a manager, somebody, not the owner, but a manager has been entrusted with overseeing that business, like a restaurant, perhaps. And, uh, you know, the manager's job, and we've talked about this before, is to take the, uh, the resources that are there and to use them faithfully. Take the, the, uh, the, the, re the uh, supplies that are purchased and take the, the, uh, the building that, that houses the business and and the clientele that comes in there and needs to manage all of that so that it turns a profit. And uh, people feel good about coming there and they keep coming back. And uh, that's the manager's job, to be faithful, to be trustworthy. The coach of a team. You know, you think about the Seahawks and, and uh, Mike Holmgren is the coach and he's been entrusted by Paul Allen with... A, with a, uh, players that he is spending millions of dollars to employ and it's Mike's job as the coach 
Mike Holmgren's job as the coach to make sure he manages that team well so that they, so that they become winners. That's being trustworthy. That's being faithful. In the parable of the talents, Matthew chapter 25, Jesus tells this story that says, His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And you remember in that, remember in that parable, the master gave uh, money to three of his servants. To one he gave uh, one talent, to another he gave two talents, and to another he gave three or uh, five talents. And then went away on a journey. When he came back, the one who had had five talents had invested that and had uh, produced and, and handed back to him uh, 100% increase. And this was his response. Well done, good and faithful slave. You, you were faithful with a few things. I entrusted this to you and you made something with it. I'll put you in charge of many things. Same thing with the, the servant who had been entrusted with two talents. Uh, had 100% return on his and handed back four. Uh, the one who had one didn't and he was declared to be unfaithful, not trustworthy. So the first thing we need to do in order to win in life, in order to win when we stand before Jesus, is to faithfully use what God has entrusted to you. Everything you have, God has given to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7 says, What do you have that you did not receive? Why then do you boast as, as, as though you had not received it? Everything you and I have, we've received from somewhere. Every good and perfect gift comes from God, James chapter 1 says. Why do you act and speak as though it wasn't something that was given to you? What God wants us to do is to be faithful with what He has entrusted to us personally. That's the key. Faithfulness is the key. It's not a matter of of producing a whole lot. It's a matter of faithfulness with what we've been entrusted. If God gives you a little, you're responsible for a little. If He gives you a lot, you're responsible for a lot. For a lot. When, when, when we're standing before Jesus someday, there will not be, you know, God will not stand Billy Graham next to Gary Rodmacher and say, Gary, you didn't match up to Billy Graham. You know, millions, hundreds of thousands of people came to faith in Jesus Christ through Billy Graham. Gary, you blew it. Because God gave more to Billy Graham than he gave to me. And the same is true for every one of us. God has given certain things to each one of us, and we're responsible for what he has given to us. Faithfulness is the key. And, I, and there's several places that illustrate that in Scripture, but one of them that sticks out in my mind is Mark chapter 10, uh, what we often refer to as the, 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 uh, the widow's might. Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. Let me remind you of this, of this incident. Verse 41. Uh, he sat down opposite the treasure, Jesus did, and began observing how the multitude were putting money into the treasury. And many rich people were putting in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which amount to a cent. And calling his disciples to him, he said, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury, for they put in out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she owned, all she had to live on. 
So it's not a matter of, of the gross amount or the gross production that we have from our life, but it's a matter of faithfulness with what God has given to us. So we have to be faithful with what He's entrusted to us. Secondly, we show that faithfulness by humbly and lovingly serving others. Humbly and lovingly serving others. Now this goes against our nature. We're naturally looking for others to serve us rather than for opportunities to serve. That's what we naturally do. You know, what, what, one of the indications of that, I think, is in our culture is how people say, I'm bored. This is so boring. And what that's saying is, nobody is serving me. <laughs> nobody's serving me. Nobody's doing what I want them to do. I don't know. Judge for yourself. See if, if you don't get the same message from that. But there's a natural tendency that we have to want other people to do something for us. We want somebody to produce something for us. And uh, so that's our, that's our nature. It goes against our nature to look for ways to serve others. Instead of saying, I'm bored, we should look for some way to minister to somebody else. How can I help make somebody else's life better? Instead of thinking about how somebody can make my life better, if I'm going to be a winner, I need to be thinking, how can I humbly and lovingly serve others? That's winning in life. To take what God has given to you and use it to make somebody else's life better. I suggest to you that if you and I get involved more in serving, we'll be less concerned about being bored because our lives will be full. Amen. You will get to the top by going to the bottom, Jesus said. <laughs> the people we respect the most are the ones that have given the most of themselves. I've mentioned this to you before, but I never fail to be impressed when I do funeral services and I talk to people. Tell me something about, before I do the service, I go and meet with the family and I talk to them. I say, tell me something about the person who died. And the thing that I hear that is the most encouraging is how much that person gave of themselves. You know, you talk to, to the grandkids and they say, well, how grandma always was giving of herself. I remember one funeral I did for a lady who lived over in Lakewood area. I'd never met her before. But I met with the family afterwards and one of the things they said that she loved to do is she loved to just sit, out, sit down and watch the, sh the home shopping network and she would just buy all kinds of stuff for everybody. <laughs> They're always getting something from grandma that she bought on the home shopping network. <laughs> but that's what she loved to do. You know, and they just remembered how much she had given of herself. She was thinking about other people while she was watching the home show. I, I don't know what everybody did with all the stuff that she bought, but, uh, but they remembered how much, how much they appreciated the fact that she was thinking of them. Uh, humbly and lovingly serving others. Philippians chapter 2. Verses 3 through 4 says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not look merely out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. We're going to naturally look out for our own interests. We're going to make sure that we get food to eat. We're going to make sure that we you know, get to a place to sleep, that we come in out of the cold, uh, that, that when it's raining we find a place that's dry. We naturally take care of our interests. But he says, look out for the interests of others. 
this convicts me. I need, to be, I need to work harder at this. I need to be more interested in other people. How's your week going? How are things going for you? You know, it's, it's my nature, and I think perhaps all of ours, that when, when we come together with somebody else, we want to talk about us. We want to talk about what's gone on in our life. But show, show interest in the affairs of others. Jesus said in John 13, when he was with his disciples, If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should do as I did. That wasn't, I don't believe that Jesus was setting up a new uh, ordinance for the church that we need to all wash each other's feet. But he was saying you need to serve one another. You need to hum- humbly and lovingly serve each other. Look for ways. When you come into a group of people, look for a way to serve. God is giving you stuff that you can use. He's giving you resources. And, and are you and I faithfully using those? That's how you win. Third, Generously sharing your resources. Generously sharing your resources. This also goes against our nature. We naturally seek to accumulate and hang on to and use our resources for ourselves rather than generously share them with others. We want to get as much as we can. We want to hang on to what we've got. We want to use it for ourselves. That's our nature. But if we want to be winners when we stand before Jesus... Take what God has given you and generously share it with others. Not tight-fistedly, but generously. Jesus said, try to hang on to it and you'll lose it. He said, give it away and you'll keep it forever. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6 says, He who sows sparingly shall also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully shall also reap bountifully. So if you just give a little away, you get a little back. You give a lot away, and you get a lot back. Now, God doesn't necessarily give it to you in kind, nor does He give it to you right now. But when you stand before Jesus, whatever you have not been paid back for on this earth, you will be paid back for in His presence. And Scripture makes it clear that it's better to wait for later because it lasts a lot longer. So let me ask you this. What has God given to you? What are the resources that God has given to you? Just generally. What are resources that God has given to us as human beings that we can share with others? Time. Okay? What? Money. Food. Energy. Knowledge. A car. (laughs) Yes. Come under the the general classification of material wealth. What else? Oops, excuse me. Talents, skills and talents, yeah. Yeah. I stepped on a flower, sorry. If I just stood in one place, I wouldn't have to worry about that. Grace. What was that? Advice, yes. We all have lots of advice to give away, don't we? Here's what I wrote down, the resources that God has entrusted to us. Knowledge, time. I think time is the most valuable. I believe it's the only one we can't get more of. Material wealth, spiritual gifts. God has given you a spiritual ability that you can share with others. Talents, physical energy, experiences. 
great resource that we have to share with other people are the experiences we've had. In, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, it says, if you've suffered in something, you can turn around and share that with others so that they can be comforted in, in uh, what you've learned to be comforted in. Those are all resources that God has given to us, and our natural tendency is to hold on to those for ourselves. And God says that if we want to be winners, we generously share those with other people. Fourth, following God's instructions. This is critical. God not only tells us what to do, but He tells us how to do it as well. There are absolutes in God's Word. There are basic principles by which we must live, and they are revealed in the pages of the Bible. It is our guidebook. If we try to do what God wants us to do the way we think is the best, we will likely fail to do His will. We need the constant instruction, reproof, correction, and training of the Scriptures in order to please God. There are several characters in the Bible who blew it. They tried to do what they thought God wanted them to do in their own way. King Saul was one. I've just been reading in 1 Samuel in the last few weeks. And King Saul uh, went to offer a sacrifice. And, uh, or he, he went into battle against the Amalekites. And God's message to him through Samuel was, wipe them all out. And so he didn't wipe them all out, but he kept the best of the, of the sheep and the goats and, and the cattle to offer his sacrifices. Samuel came up and says, I hear all these animals. What's the deal? You're supposed to kill them all. He says, well, we saved them so we could offer them to God. And that's where God says, as, have I as much delight in uh, burnt sacrifices as I do in obedience? He was trying to do it his way, but he did it the wrong way, and it was because of that very event that God's word to, to him was, I've removed you as king. I'm looking for somebody else who will follow my word. That was significant. There was, another, there was a couple of other young men named Nadab and Abihu. Not popular names today, but uh, they were the sons of Aaron. And, uh, you know, they were pretty excited about being able to be uh, priests and being able to offer sacrifices, but they did it their own way. They kind of thought, I don't know, the way that God wants us to do it is kind of boring and parochial. Let's, let's be creative. And so they... they um, they were creative. The Bible says they offered strange fire. I don't know exactly what that means, but God took their lives. Because if you do God's thing, you need to do it in His way. Uzzah. I love these names in the Bible. Uzzah. Here was a man who was trying to, he was trying to do what he thought was right, but he knew better. Walking along the road, excited because the Ark of the Covenant was, being, was coming into town. And uh, on the wagon that it was, it went into a ditch. And, it, and the, the, the wagon and the Ark kind of rocked on the thing. And he put his hand out to hold it from falling. And he fell down dead. And we look at that and go, whoa, that's so severe, God. You took his life. He was, he was just protecting your Ark for you. The fact is, he was a part of the family of, of the... Of the um, the Aaronic family, uh, descendants of Aaron, whose responsibility it was to carry the ark 
and God had given specific instructions on how it was to be carried. There were rings on it, and you were supposed to put the poles through it, and it was supposed to be carried on the shoulders by people, not, car- not on a cart. And it was because of his disobedience that God took his life. He was trying to do what he thought was God's will in his own way. And there's many stories about people in the Bible like that. So if we're trying to do what God wants us to do and we try to do it in our own way, we won't win either. Scripture says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. The man of God or the woman of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. How, do you, how can you be ready to do good works? And, and these are the criteria by which God will judge us. You become ready and equipped to do good works by spending time in the Scriptures. James chapter 4, 17 says, To the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it's sin. If you could ask any of the Seahawks right now, nearly 3 o'clock in Detroit, do you want to win today? <laughs> I think we all know what their response would be. Of course we want to win. They know what they need to do to win. It's no mystery to them. They just need to work hard and work together for three more hours in order to to come out on top, to be winners. You also know what you need to do in order to win when you stand before Jesus. You know what it is. We've talked about it. Whether you're 18 or 80, the requirements are the same, and here they are. Faithfully use what God has entrusted to you humbly and lovingly serving others, generously sharing your resources, following God's instructions. Question is, will you go for the win? If you receive Jesus as your Savior, you have the Holy Spirit, you have prayer, you have the Scriptures, you have the family of God, you have everything you need to win, and you know what to do. So let's go out there and win. (laughs) Some kind of a speech is going to go on like that today, I suspect, in a couple of locker rooms. But seriously, what we have to win is far more substantial, far more long-lasting than a Super Bowl ring or the adulation of the crowds, or, or a ticker tape parade. A ticker tape parade through Pittsburgh or through Seattle will be a wonderful thing for the winners, but nothing in comparison to walking up before Jesus and hearing Him say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you that you have taken the complicated and made it simple for us again today. To faithfully use what you've entrusted us to us. To humbly and lovingly serve others. To generously share what you've given to us. And to follow your instructions. How simple could it be? How complicated we make it sometimes. And yet when we come back to you and we come back to your word and look at it in its simplicity, we recognize that 
that anybody can do it by the power of God. So Lord, I pray that you would cause us to take advantage of the resources that you've given us in prayer and in your Holy Spirit and in the Scriptures and in each other. And that we grab two or three other people and say, let's do it together. Let's hold each other accountable. Let's study the Scriptures together. Let's talk about how to put it into practice. Let's see how we're doing. Let's ask the hard questions of one another and say, how are you doing? Are you on the winning side? Are you doing the things that, need, that we need to do? And uh, call out for help and prayer and, and uh, run to you and ask you to evaluate us. Lord, I pray that you'd help us not to be satisfied just going to church every Sunday. Praying before we eat our meals. But God, that you would generate from within in each one of us a hunger, a passion that is deep and unrelenting. It says, I must press toward the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. I want to get together. I want to run in such a way that I can win. And Lord, if there's a fire burning in, in, in our hearts this morning, I pray that we would not keep it to ourselves, but that we'll share that with each other and say, I want to do it. I want to win when I stand before Jesus. Would you help me? Would you work together with me? Oh Lord, I pray that we would be changed people because you've spoken to us by your spirit and through your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.